garden of pure ideology, where each worker may bloom, secure from the pests of a contradictory force. Of course, is more powerful a weapon than any fleet or army on earth. We are one people, with one will, one resolve, one cause. Our enemies shall talk themselves to death, and we will bury them with their own confusion. We shall prevail. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. There's just something about a good, memorable announcement. The opening video was Apple's announcement during the 1984 Super Bowl that in the world of technology, things were going to be different. The first Macintosh computer was about to be birthed into existence. Truth be told, the first Macintosh was actually years in the making and countless hours and dollars invested to bring to market what would ultimately change technology world and put Apple on the map. Now, I was just, nerd moment, I know, I, I say it all the time, but like, I was just wondering myself, like, what in the world did the first Macintosh computer cost? What would that have set you back, back in 1984? $2,500. Now that may not seem like a whole lot, but like consider today, you can get a computer for like pennies on the dollar anymore. Back in 1984, $2,500 was a whole lot of coin. And what's really particularly interesting about this ad that was shown during the 1984 Super Bowl is that it was the one and only time that it aired nationally. And yet it has become one of the most iconic commercials in all of advertising history, why? Why in the world one commercial that's shown one time becomes one of the pinnacle moments of all of advertising history? Because it spoke a message in a very memorable way. It, it made an announcement that was not soon forgotten, and it made a claim that things would not be the same as far as computers and computer processing and technology was concerned from that point forward. And you know, in a similar but far more eternally significant way, the, the prophet Isaiah makes his own announcement. Makes an announcement that, that things are going to change and, and nothing can remain the same in one of the most important prophetic passages in all of the Old Testament. Now last week we looked at Isaiah's prediction that a, that a child would be born in the most inconceivable of ways to, to a virgin. And that was to be ultimately a comforting sign that, that God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. And this week, Isaiah builds on that foundation. We find our scripture for this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, your device, whatever you want, pull up Isaiah chapter 9. And starting in verse 1, I hear you, Sal. I mean, he is. Oof. I'm hungry too, buddy. I'm hungry too. Isaiah 9 verse 1 says this, Nevertheless, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. 
The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian." The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Now there is undoubtedly a lot going on in just these seven verses of Scripture. And again, we have to remember and we have to consider the context into which Isaiah is writing these words. As we learned last week, we are smack dab in the middle of the reign of King Ahaz. And suffice it to say, he is, he's not a great guy. He's actually a really horrible leader for God's people. He, he's led them astray and right into pagan worship and idolatry. God's people have completely turned their backs on him, and as a result, the full weight of the ancient world is bearing down on them in the form of the Assyrian army. God is using Assyria, this pagan and this brutal culture and kingdom, to humble Judah for the decisions that their leader has made, that they've made themselves. But, but here is what we need to notice any time that we come to a section of Scripture like this. And the Old Testament is really much like this. It's really brutal. It's very violent. It's very graphic. And we think to ourselves, why in the world is this in here? I mean, wouldn't it be better if all this was just happiness and joy and everybody was singing? The reason it's in there is to, is to give us a very clear message that God does mean business but that God never intends to leave his people in a position of destruction. God, God never brings the destruction, and although he may allow the destruction and despair, he never wants that to be the end of the story. And that's what he's speaking here in Isaiah chapter 9. Israel, Judah, I do not want this to be the end of the story for you. God is always trying to speak a message of hope and a message of restoration, even during the bleakest of times. And for Judah, there is nothing more defeating than hearing for all intents and purposes, you guys are toast. That's how it sounded to their ears. I mean, imagine being in Judah during the time of Isaiah and hearing the words that you hear from this prophet. In Isaiah 8, we hear these words. Isaiah 8, starting at verse 6. It says, my care for the people of Judah is like the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, but they have rejected it. They have rejected my care. They have rejected my tenderness. Verse 7, he says, therefore the Lord will overwhelm them with a mighty flood from the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria and all his glory. This flood will overflow all its channels and sweep into Judah until it is chin deep. It will spread its wings, submerging your land from one end to the other. Verses 14 and 15. 
He will keep you safe. But to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and he will be a snare. Many will stumble, many will fall, never to rise again. They will be snared and captured. And then in verse 21 and 22, if that's not enough already, he says they will go from one place to another, weary and hungry. And because they are hungry, they will rage and they will curse their king and their God and they will look up to heaven and down at the earth. But wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. And it's on the heels of this utter defeat and hopelessness that Isaiah speaks the words that we've already read in Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, Again, God does not leave us in destruction. Nevertheless, that time of darkness, that time of despair, will not go on forever. For unto us a child is born. Now, it's a bit easier to see how that changes a lot of things, doesn't it? But it really still doesn't get at how a prophecy that will ultimately be fulfilled hundreds of years in the future helps King Ahaz and the Judeans in their present moment, does it? Like, that's kind of confusing to me. I read that and be like, I mean, that's really awesome. I, I love that. That works for us today. But how in the world did that work for Ahaz and the Judeans back in their time? And for us to understand the, the full weight and capture the whole message that Isaiah is speaking, we have to dig deep into these seven verses in chapter 9 to fully comprehend the enormity of what he is saying, not only to Israel thousands of years ago, but guys, how it changes our life here and now. I want you to know that every time, I feel like every time that we get to the Old Testament, we read something in the Old Testament, we're like, well, that was great. I mean, that's great for them. But how did it change my life? Every single word that we read, even words from the Old Testament and Old Testament prophecy are especially for us too to hear today. Specifically, I want to focus on a couple of verses here, verses six and seven. I want to use these verses to bring clarity on how the light comes into the darkness for God's people, whether it's Judah 700 years ago before Christ, or it's us 2,000 plus years after Christ. Because the truth is, guys, as I said last week, there are so many people in this world. There are so many of you who came in here this morning who are living in a really deep darkness, who are living in pain and struggle and despair and gloom with no apparent way out. But guys, there, there is hope. And we begin to discover that hope here in Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6 tells the reader, or whoever would hear it, that a child will be born, or is born to us. And guys, I don't want you to miss that last two words there. That is a very significant phrase that I don't want you to overlook. A child, a redeemer, a savior, a hope bringer is not brought into this world simply for giggles or for a show. Jesus did not show up on the scene and say, hey, it's me, I'm here, and lights and like pyrotechnics and everything going off. He was sent to this world for one purpose. I mean, do you see it? Look at it again there at Isaiah 9, verse 6. Read it again. A child is born to us. Those two words change everything. Everything Isaiah is speaking here has everything to do with all of us because we are necessarily included in to us. 
And just so we don't miss the significance of that, Isaiah repeats that line again. A son is given what? To us. Not, not to us 700 years before it was prophesied. To us today, right now, sitting here in these seats. The next phrase is fascinating, particularly in light of the unstable and highly charged political climate we have in our own country, but also across the world. Isaiah says this, the government will rest on his shoulders. That's a really heavy weight, guys. An enormous weight. And this is the moment where we know that Isaiah is talking about someone who is otherworldly and completely unique. No one can carry the weight of an entire government. Not even the best leaders that we have seen throughout the course of history have been able to shoulder the load of an entire nation's government on their own. And yet here we have in Isaiah a promise of one who will not only shoulder the enormous demands of an entire nation, but bear the burden of an entire world. Of an entire world's order and rule and government. I think what happens is that in every moment of history, we have sought to find the perfect form of government. We have sought to find the perfect leader for that government. The right and the just way to rule and lead the people. But guys, if history has taught us anything in this one thing, it's that we have utterly, utterly failed at creating peace and finding a leader who will ultimately make things better and right. Guess what? There's a reason for that. We're never going to find that leader here on this earth. We're never going to find that type of government here on this earth. Guys, governments are only as good or as bad as the character of the one who leads them. And, and one thing we should know really well, because I think we know ourselves well enough, is that the character of the human race is tragically and permanently corrupted and twisted. Isaiah 8 ends in the gloom of despair and darkness as Israel is seeking wisdom without seeking God. But God had promised in one prophecy to change all of that. Not through some human institution, not through some government, not our own wisdom, but through the light that was sent to us in Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to lose this. This is crazy to me. What is so, I mean, listen to what he's saying. The government and the entire weight of the world will be on his shoulders. And automatically what people conjure up in their minds is some powerful ruler, some warrior king that will come in and will take care of everything. And what is so surprising is that the conqueror of this darkness that Isaiah talks about is a child. A little baby wrapped up and in a manger. A son who is born to us. Luke chapter 2 captures this. Luke chapter 2 verse 10 when the angels show up and says the angel reassured the shepherds in their fear and their trembling. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy. There it is again. What? To all people. And then it finishes out in verses 13 and 14 saying this. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This child that Isaiah speaks of and the angels proclaim is uniquely suited to carry the entire weight of the world on his shoulders. 
And at last, in this one prophecy year in Isaiah 9, the quest and the search for a perfect and lasting rule and reign, the perfect leader has come to the people. And what sets this child apart from any other are the names that are given to him in verse 7. And in these names, we get a greater sense of the role of this Messiah and what he's to play in redemptive history. Names are really important, aren't they, guys? I mean, names reveal a lot about who we are. Every single one of your names, if you were to go home and look it up on Google today, would say something about you. It may not say the right thing about you, but it's going to say something about you. I've said this before. I've looked it up, and I really like my name. It was given very, very well because Ryan means little king. I kid you not. You can Google that yourself. Don't do it right now. All right, go home. But it means little king, all right? So I like my name. I'm going to keep my name. I was actually supposed to be a Scot. I don't know what that really means, but Ryan, little king. I'll stay right in that. It's really important to note that, like I said, names reveal a lot about us. And when God promises to send a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer to this world, He describes Him by four important names. Four important names that show us what kind of Savior He is is to be to us. Four names that I think address the problems that we are facing in life. I'm convinced that in these four phrases, these four pairs, there is a mix of natural and supernatural, that we find exactly what we need in our lives today. A message that God meets us in our mess and brings beauty from ashes. So with the rest of the time that I have this morning, I want to take a look at these powerful pairs that we find in Isaiah chapter 9. And full disclosure, I'm actually not going to do all four pairs I'm not going to treat mighty God because I feel like we've done that a lot over the last few weeks. If you remember my space illustrations, mighty God. There you go. All right, we're past that. If you didn't see it, go to the Facebook page, look for like a couple weeks ago, and have your mind blown. That's the God we serve. Wonderful counselor. What what is so great about Jesus being a wonderful counselor is that it means that Jesus came for people with problems. Like, isn't that great? I mean, do you know what that means, guys, really and truly? Jesus came for you, and he came for me, and he came for every person on this world, because guess what we have a lot of? Problems. I mean, we are just a walking ball of problems, a walking mess. And sometimes we get down on ourselves, we're like, man, I am, I'm just a mess. Who in the world would want to be around me? A wonderful counselor. A perfect counselor. Every single miracle that Jesus ever did started with a problem. I know that's probably not revolutionary, but we often don't think about that. Jesus' miracles weren't magic tricks. His miracles engaged hunger and poverty and disease and brokenness and death. Real big problems. And here's the really good news, guys. If you have a problem and you are in here this morning, you're a candidate for a miracle. You you are primed for a session with the ultimate wonderful counselor. Jesus said that he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. He came not to reward the righteous, but to save the sinner. He is the great physician, not the great buddy for super awesome people who don't really think they need him anyway. 
The wonderful counselor has promised that his power is so great. Again, mighty God. That there is no problem that you have that he can't deal with. And his love for you is so immensely great that he will never turn you away. You see, his might is not just in the fact that he stands in authority over all creation, but that he has the perfect defense to every problem and obstacle. What looks like an impassable mountain to us is nothing but a slight bump to him. But here is the highly important thing that we often overlook when it comes to Jesus' ability to be with us, to be for us, and to counsel us. And this is so insanely, insanely important. Guys, God is is not going to change your life. Jesus is not going to radically realter your life and restructure your life without changing you. And does that hurt? That hurts sometimes. That bring pain, it brings a lot of pain sometimes. And here's a further insight. In order for any of us, in order for you to get help from a wonderful counselor, what you actually have to do is you actually have to put your yes on the table before he even asks the question. It's it's actually like in life, we need to just simply give God a blank check. I I mean, think about the implications of giving someone a blank check in life. If I walk up today and I would go to Levi and I'd say, Levi, here you go, man, blank check. Do with it what you please. He's not going to get very far, number one, but, you know, it's all right. He feels important. Like, there are some massive implications to a blank check. They have complete access to your bank account to your possessions, to, to, to everything, guys. I think oftentimes what happens in life is, is when we approach people or we approach God specifically, we don't really think about giving him a blank check. We just want to give him a gift card. And I mean, it may, it may be a really generous gift card. Like, I'm talking like a $500 gift card, all right? But guess what happens with a gift card? We're still ultimately in control of how much we give away, aren't we? It's set. It's fixed. When the gift card is gone, we have no more obligations to do anything else. And here is what God says to us over and over again if we would only hear it, if we would only trust him. He says, I don't take gift cards. I don't take credit cards. There is one thing that I take, blank checks. Wide open surrender to me and my will. I think that so many people are interested in Jesus. But there are, there are certain convictions that they just won't surrender, no matter what Jesus says. Certain areas of life that you won't let him touch. And the only deal, the only one throughout Scripture that Jesus makes to us is that he will give all of himself to you if you would only surrender all of you. That's the only way that Jesus works. It's the only way the counselor works. Isaiah uses the word wonderful here to describe Jesus not for the solutions that he can give to our problems. What is most wonderful are not the way that he fixes things, but his presence in those problems. Guys, that wonderful presence is far more valuable than any solution that he can give to our problems. Yes, God can help practically with problems. But guys, he gives us something far greater than an answer to those things. He gives you himself. 
Jesus comes to us and He says, I'm, I'm wide open and I have given Myself to you. God wrote the ultimate blank check when He put Jesus on that cross, when Jesus went to that cross for us and He said, wide open. Life's greatest discovery is, is knowing Jesus. Knowing He loves you and He promises to be present in your life. That doesn't take away any of your problems. I want you to hear that this morning. This isn't magical, like pixie dust that you sprinkle everything. Like, I have Jesus and so my life's awesome now. No. It doesn't make your problems go away, but it completely changes how you go through your problems. With a wonderful counselor. That brings me to the next phrase that I think speaks volumes to us. Something that I think that a lot of us and this world really needs to hear is that Jesus is an everlasting Father. Guys, if there was ever anything that we needed in a Savior, any relationship that needed to be redeemed and restored, it is the Father relationship. National statistics show that 71% of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 75% of teenagers in substance abuse centers are from fatherless homes. One of these studies claimed that almost every social ill faced by America's children is related to fatherlessness. One California school study noted that 98%, that's a big number, guys, 98% of its discipline issues were caused by emotionally damaged young boys whose common characteristic was, you guessed it, what? fatherlessness. One prominent scientist put it this way, nothing is more common than for a young person to lose faith in God when he loses respect for his father. Eric Metaxas pointed out that almost all of the famous atheists in modern times had one thing in common, an absentee father or a traumatic relationship with their father. Sociologist Vern Bingston says in his book, Families and Faith, that studies conclusively show that the quality of the child's relationship to the father is the single most important factor in whether the child adopts the faith of the parents. And you know what? For many of you, you you have great dads, or or you you had great dads. And and your memories of him are, are fond and they are cherished. I'm lucky enough this morning to have my dad here with me. I do. I think of a lot of great memories. The great dad. And some of you, the greatest pain in your life comes from your relationship with your father. And suffice it to say, even if you have the best dad in the world, the best dads disappoint us and they fall short of our expectations. And guys, there's a reason for that, is, is because our earthly fathers are only ever meant to point us to the one true father. When you you think of the ideal father, think in your mind for just a moment, and you think of the ideal father, what comes to your mind? And sadly for a lot of us, the word father doesn't always bring to mind someone who shepherds and affirms and stays close. Instead, it brings up character traits and adjectives like distant and aloof and passive and absent, and unreliable, and selfish, and uncaring, and just flat-out cruel. Not so for Jesus. Jesus, your everlasting 
Father came down into a broken and sinful world, and he came to make sons and to make daughters out of his enemies. Guys, that is the greatest gift that we could have this Christmas. It's the greatest thing that you could dwell on this Christmas. And once we become a child of of Christ, we are his and he is ours forever. Guys, forever. There will be no goodbyes with him. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from his love. Not even death itself. Indeed, in death itself, we actually draw nearer to Jesus, our everlasting Father. There is no unfathering Christ and there is no unchilding us, Charles Spurgeon once said. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust in him. And some of you are sitting there thinking, this is really weird. Like, how in the world could Jesus be our father? Like, that's another person of the Trinity. That may seem odd to us, especially since we reserve that role for God the Father, but Jesus certainly takes that role in the Gospels over and over again, especially with his disciples, and especially for the people that he wanted to shower his compassion upon. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 2 says this about Jesus and how he is a father to us. Is it Matthew 9, 2? Is it there? Oh, she was so in. She was like, I'm into this. So some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. You know this story, right? Guy's friends bring him on a mat. Next, next slide. And it says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, be encouraged. And then what does it say right there? My child, for your sins are forgiven. Mark chapter 5, 34, he does very much the same thing. And he said to the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Which brings me to the last phrase here. Prince of peace. What in the world does it mean that Jesus would be a prince and that he would bring peace to us? And what I really notice about our culture is they are still really fond of the idea of princes and princesses, aren't they? I mean, what is one of the hottest movies out right now? Frozen 2. After two weekends, and actually this is a little bit of old research here that I did, after two weekends in the theaters, Frozen 2 already had made nearly $300 million in the U.S. alone. $451 million overseas, bringing its worldwide total in just a couple of weeks to $738.6 million. This, after the original smash hit, grossed over $1.2 billion at the theaters, not to mention what it's made in the digital space and on other merchandise. There is something in us, guys, deep down in us as the image bearers of God that loves the themes of kings and kingdoms and princes and princesses. And guys, we love it because I think we all long for a hero, And tragically enough, sometimes we long to be the hero. We want to bring the peace. We want to bring the prosperity to our whole world. But eventually, if we're wise enough and we look enough, reality begins to set in and we we understand we can't be the hero of our own story. We cannot be the ultimate peacemaker. And humanity's problem has always been a kingship or a a lordship problem, an issue. We we hate 
to submit to the fact that we are lousy kings and queens of this world and in our own lives. Guys, just look at it. Look at our world today. The world is a mess. I mean, we've desired world peace forever, and we cannot deliver it. And here is the best news that we have here in Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus is that prince. Perfect prince of peace. And, and by placing the throne of Jesus Christ at the center of creation and all of human history, God is really just shoving us off of the throne shoving us off the position that we normally occupy in our own lives. Guys, there is nothing as bad as trying to do and to be someone that you are not designed to be. You are not designed to be a king or a prince or a queen or a princess. In fact, I would say it this way, it will literally kill you spiritually and then eventually physically to be the king or queen of your own life. People can only be as, as peaceful as their prince or their king. People cannot be more peaceful than their ruler, or their, their ruler really dictates the climate. The decisions of a prince will, will make or break a kingdom. It is no coincidence that we long for stability. We long for a powerful and everlasting place where peace reigns. And what does God do here in Isaiah chapter 9? He calls Jesus mighty, everlasting prince of peace. Connect the dots, people. The prince of peace God is talking about here is a, a, a prince of what, what, what Hebrew would call shalom. Shalom is not merely just kicking your feet up in a hammock by a quiet river next to a mountain. That's not the peace that we're talking about. That's not shalom. The concept of true peace, true shalom, is a concept of, of, of wholeness and integrity, and completeness, things being the way that they should be. The word shalom in the past was used for, for a perfect stone that had no cracks in it, for a perfect wall that had no gaps in it. And so a city and a people with such stones and walls could live in shalom, could live in completeness, could live in wholeness, could live in full protection, security, peace, no cracks, no gaps. Guys, so when, when something cracks in our life, when sin creates gaps in our life, you are in need of shalom. But we can't attain that peace, that state of completeness on our own. We're full of cracks. We're full of gaps in our life. And one thing that I know to be true, not only in my life, but all, all of life, is that a broken self cannot help itself. Your brokenness is never going to make you whole again, no matter how many times you try to put the pieces back together. And that is why it is such amazing news that the Prince of Peace came down to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And the reason that some of you have been wandering far too long is because you've been following you. You behold you. You see yourself as the king or queen of your life as if you were some sort of humble king. You're not. Every single one of us in this world, at many points in life, are just prideful, wannabe kings and queens. And you think you want peace, but what you actually want to do is, is just do as you please. And you cannot have peace and do as you please at the same time. 
It takes, it takes a real king, a king of peace to deliver us from ourselves and the darkness of our hearts and minds. And guys, Jesus is that king. Not just 2,000 years ago, but right now in 2019. He will be king into 2020 and beyond. Jesus is the arrival of Shalom. He made peace for the cracks and the, the gaps between us sinners and a holy God. He alone restores to us wholeness and completeness with our maker. He filled, like I said, those cracks and those gaps in our lives by absorbing all of those cracks and those gaps into himself. He was so committed to restoring wholeness to us that he would become broken in our place. He took the brokenness and he offers us all of the wholeness. I came across a long time ago um, this really interesting pe uh, uh, art form. I've got a picture of it up here. I wish I, oh, maybe I don't. Um, never mind, I don't have it. It's just a white box. That's really beautiful, though, by the way. Uh, this Japanese art form is called kintsugi. Has anybody ever heard of it before? Nobody. Great. Let me teach you about kintsugi. I wish I had the picture because it's really cool. So what they do is, I don't know if they purposely break this or if something becomes broken, like a piece of pottery, is that they take it and they put it back together, not in a traditional way. They don't like use Gorilla Glue or Super Glue and be like, there you go, awesome, it's back to normal. They actually take flakes of gold or silver or platinum and then they kind of paste everything back together again. So if you get the idea and you get the image, they take this beautiful piece of pottery and then within it are the cracks still, yes, but it's all filled in with, with gold. And I, I saw that a long time ago, and it came back up again as I was thinking about this and this idea of, of our brokenness and Jesus giving us all of his wholeness. And I thought to myself, you know, kintsugi is like a really great metaphor and idea for what Jesus does for us, right? Is that every single one of us comes to God in our brokenness, and we think there's no possible way that I could ever be restored again, be put back together again. And not only does Jesus put us back together again, but he puts us together in a much more beautiful way than we could ever imagine. And it's not with gold, and it's not with silver, it's not with platinum, but it's with Jesus saying that I now call you children. I now call you daughter. I now call you son. And so that for all those places in life where you have a crack and you have a gap, that you feel like it never be filled back up again. Jesus makes even more beautiful in his way, in his time. Here's the thing about hope, guys. Hope is not some ethereal kind of idea like out there, like, well, I, I hope that Jesus would accept me. No, guys, here in Isaiah chapter 9, hope gets a name. Actually, hope gets several names. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would hear that this morning. We would hear those titles that are given to you. And we would see them not just as words on a page and not just as really super impressive titles. But Lord, I pray that we would see in them the hope that you give to us. The hope is not just an idea. It's not just an afterthought. It's not just a what if. Hope is you. And you are available to every single person who would come to you in faith, 
would give their lives over to you, would surrender to you, and would be saved. And so I pray this morning that if there are those here who have never given up control of their lives, they are still the king or the queen of their own life, Lord, they would release control today. They would come to you in faith. They would come to you in surrender. They would give their lives to you. That the moment to take you as their Savior is right now, today. That they would be able to take that step. That you would move them through your spirit to take that step this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.